1: Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Alright, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Jesse Akosbeck. and uh, Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, I would love to. Um, my name is Jesse Kozbeck, and I run the platform Feral Foraging. It's an education platform, which is focused on empowering people and giving them the tools that they need to be confident, ethical, and effective foragers. That's my goal.
1: I like that. So confident, effective, and what was the one? And ethical. Ethical. So let's kind of talk about that—the ethics of foraging. I think that's a good, good thing to talk about. So can we kind of Definitely. get into that a little bit? What do you, What do you yeah. mean by ethical?
2: Yeah. So generally speaking, and I, I guess it fits into my—I would say my—my my grand scheme of of why I care about foraging and why I want to teach other people about foraging. So I think that one of the biggest problems that we're facing today is the loss of natural habitat and natural land and I think that one of the most effective ways that we can start to reverse that process to go in the other direction of of gaining some of it back is by cultivating and building people that have a deep investment and a deep relationship with their land I think foraging is one of the best ways to do that but along the way If I were as an educator to only teach people about, like, oh, you know, here's this plant here, here's that plant there, you can use this one this way and this one that way, uh, I would be doing a huge disservice. I need to teach you first about how to forage in a way that we all can forage before we all just go out and start picking every plant that we see in the woods. And ethics is one of the most important things there. So I think that if we teach as many people as possible, to be ethical foragers, that uh, it, it's my way of trying to fight this battle of bringing back and capturing back native land and uh, natural spaces.
1: No, I like that. So, what's funny about that is, as I started, and you talked about, it, you and I talked about it a little bit before we actually started this recording, that I did come from a hunting space. And <clears throat> that hunting space is different. Uh, A lot of times, especially on private land, people will clear cut things to make room for food plots and destroy some of the natural vegetation that's there in order to grow other things. Some of them are even invasives that they plant to try and attract the deer. And as I started down my foraging journey, not that I ever did that, uh, that much with planting food plots and stuff. Um, But I started realizing food sources, one that I would eat, one that the deer would eat, um, recognizing whether or not they're a native species or an invasive species. And that all came from that foraging aspect to where I developed that relationship with the plants. And now I can take my children and show them and say, look, this is this. This is important because it actually you know, puts nitrogen back into the soil and it helps other plants grow or this does this and it has a relationship with that. And then, you know, their eyes light up and they're like, wow, everything's connected dad. And I'm like, yeah, I wish I would have realized that at five and seven years old, you know? So it's, it's really neat to see that. And I can, I can tell, you know, when you're talking about that, that's kind of, what you're explaining when you're saying you wanted them to develop that relationship. So their eyes can be open too, and, and destruction of habitat. You know, you don't ever really think about a hunter destroying the habitat, but they do as well. And, and so many other aspects, we're losing so much of it that, you know, I try anytime I can to to, to educate, you know, my children and others that they can learn from it. So I think it's a pretty good thing and, and a great way to try and educate people.
2: Right. Well, and so I talk about hunting a lot, And I use it basically as an example of why. So I I try to convince or I've tried to convince uh, public land management entities that they should allow foraging and regulate it. So like if someone wants to hunt for mushrooms on uh, this piece of public land, you know, people should be able to buy a permit to forage for mushrooms or, or what have you. And I always point to hunting as something that is a parallel to that instead of going for mushrooms we're hunting or we're you know hunting foraging for animals and showing that at least to my eyes it's been a huge success and through hunting and hunters buying a permit every year that money is going back into the land i have a hunter friend of mine he said even if you don't hunt if you're a conservationist if you care about the land you should get a hunting license because that that money goes into conserving the land further. So it, yeah, it's, it's all part of the same thing. And I would love to see more programs like that, uh, because yeah, in, in many ways, I think that a lot of times maybe people have good intentions, but, but the money just isn't there. The funds aren't there. And so this is yet another way that we can increase that and to bring, bring more funding to preserving our spaces, but preserving them in a way that not that we're, we aren't doing this already, but, uh, that it brings people closer to the land. Like, you know, someone could donate to some project like, Oh yeah, you know, that's great that I'm donating to this thing. And, and that's awesome. I think people should do that. And I think way more people would donate if it's like, yeah, I'm donating to this thing because like that, that's my land right there. And I take part in it. I i am a part of it. I go out there and that's where I get these mushrooms. That's, that's where I get these plants and they feel like they're one and the same with it. Cause in, in many ways we, we are that exactly.
1: Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. And like, I quit spraying my lawn, started letting native species come back and start flourishing, you know, it was years ago and I always, I never truly was like a super well manicured lawn. It didn't look like a golf course, but you know, compared to what it looks like now is a lot different. And if you have somebody that's in that monoculture mindset that comes over and they look at it, it probably drives them nuts. But at the same time, I don't have to worry about bending over and picking something and putting it in my mouth because I'm not doing anything to it. And it's been quite a while since that. But the diversity in all the plants that are there now is absolutely astonishing. And and to see, you know not only dandelions, but the violets coming back and everything that you can you know, possibly think of throughout the different seasons, it's starting to be there. And it's amazing. Right?
2: Yeah. It's funny because I remembered just like encountering a friend of mine's mom, like back when I was in college and we were on the college campus and there was these clovers that were growing on the lawn. And she was remarking about how ugly the clovers were and it's so funny because it kind of it is what you're talking about with that, the monoculture mindset. But I think that that's a very unnatural thing because if I were to like pick a clover and show it to you and be like, wow, look at this flower. Like, Yeah, that's a beautiful flower. In fact, so uh, I was actually born in Canada. And uh, my family moved down to... I'm in Alabama now. So we, we moved down to Alabama when I was very young. And there's a very common what many would call weed down here, uh, henbit and purple dead nettle. And when we first found them, my mom would pick them and put them into a vase because she thought they were beautiful. <laughs> and people would see them be like, oh my gosh, why did you pick this weed? And it's just funny. It's all about perspective. To her, it wasn't a weed. It was this new, beautiful, and they are very beautiful, purple flower. It wasn't a weed. So yeah, when when we, and that's another part of it is, so there's a piece of land close to me that a friend took me to recently uh several years back and it was one of the most amazing ginseng patches i'd ever seen in my life Uh, and (laughs) and not just ginseng i mean the amount of uh, fungal diversity there and biodiversity was crazy and so for someone to take you to their ginseng patch that's kind of a big deal because it's a very rare plant um and uh, yeah, as, people should be very careful with that as, as they should. And he said, yeah, I'm taking you here because, you know, in a couple months, this is going to be developed and it'll all be gone. And so that was, that was a really sad moment. And, and sure enough, it's gone now. It, it's, it's not there anymore. And I talked to people about that. And the answer is, of course, because to most people, that land only had value in what you could turn it into houses and sell it for. That's the only value that it had. And if we kind of flip that narrative and we, we collectively learn, no, there, there's way more value in, in it beyond just being able to be used for timber or turn into a house or turn into a parking lot or whatever it might be. There's value in it just the way it is. I, I think that that starts to change the story and we start to really see things differently. But we have to know. We have to know that it's there. And that's why I'm so passionate about teaching this stuff. And, you know, trying to reach as many people as I possibly can.
1: Yeah, that it kind of reminds me of I was talking to my dad and showing him some different plants. He's like, you better be careful. You're going to poison yourself with all of this stuff. And I said, what do you think you're doing with all the food that you're getting from all these, uh, you know, modern agriculture places and in uh, the grocery stores? I said, what do you think you're doing? I said, and then you see this. And I picked up some ground ivy and I said. This can actually help cleanse your body and remove heavy metals. And he's like, wow, oh, I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, that's, that's the relationship that we've lost. The relationship with all of these plants that, you know, some cultures, they spoke to them. They had a different relationship than other cultures, but everybody knew how to utilize them and to the best of their ability and, and had a relationship with them. That we don't have anymore. And that disconnect really, really takes away from their value. And just like you said, if you have that disconnect, they have no value to anybody. And then they just bulldoze it over and it's gone forever. It's, it's pretty yeah. sad.
2: And I think, I think it does not take many generations being removed from, from that practice to where it's, it's really gone. And... I mean, how many generations of people living with these plants did it take for us to learn these things and form these relationships? And it's it, you know, if it's gone, then it's going to take that again to get them back. So I'm really big about people who uh, are also teaching kids about this stuff. And I, I work with my local land trust, and I get to do some kids programs with them. And I I love to to get to do those. And it's funny I, I did one uh, teaching mushrooms to kids. And, you know, parents are there making sure that everyone's safe, make sure to tell the kids, you know, don't put any of the mushrooms in your mouth, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Because outside of that, there's not really concern safety wise. It's mainly just ingestion. Right. We don't want to eat something that we don't know um, or haven't cooked. And but it's it's like. So I would tell them stories. I, I brought the the mushroom, like a big Amanita muscaria mushroom cap, and they all lit up because they they recognized it from Mario. <laughs> so I could tell, you know, a lot of them were really into video games, yeah. but then I would tell them a little bit about mushrooms, and it's like, okay, now we're gonna go and find some. And just hearing the the first kid like, oh, I found one, I found one. And and just to to get to experience that excitement of like, I told you about this thing, it's a mushroom. And maybe you'd seen mushrooms your whole life, but now now it's this interesting thing. Now there's intrigue. It's it's something that you are curious about. And yeah, just just getting to see that is is really rewarding and exciting.
1: Absolutely. The other day it was pretty pretty flattering. Uh my my middle child told me, she goes, Daddy, you know an awful lot of or what'd she say? She said you know about every plant there is. And I go, honey, I wish. I said, thank you, but that's not even close. And I said, I have friends that know so much more than me that they could tell you almost every plant in this yard. And I said, there's even more plants than that that people don't know. And they were like, whoa. It just totally blew their mind and see their little faces trying to wrap their head around that. It was pretty cool. But it brings me to a question that I need to ask you. So, do you think it was intentional to put the Amanita Muscaria in Mario Brothers? Like, was there a significance there, do you think? Or just because it was recognizable?
2: That, that's a really good question. No one has... I have not ever encountered that question before. And... The the short answer is, I don't know. But the longer answer is, I'm very intrigued, and I would like to think about that more. Because, you know, surely they wouldn't just throw any, like, they wouldn't just picked a mushroom at random to throw in there. Right. Throw um, a
1: chanterelle in there, and, and it wouldn't be right. the same.
2: <laughs> yeah, because yeah, the, there's other mushrooms out there that are equally, yeah, chanterelles are vibrant. um Indigo milk cap, you know, very, very beautiful blue color. There's all these things that they could have chose, but... Yeah, they chose Amanita muscaria. And now, of course, it's, it's one of the most iconic mushrooms in the world. But, and and I, I've researched that mushroom to some extent. And, of course, there is a lot of culture around that mushroom to begin with. And so maybe that's what
1: drew them to it in the first place.
2: But that's a good question. <laughs>
1: and the effects that the mushroom has on Mario also kind of symbolizes that he gets bigger and stronger all of a sudden, you know, like there's I mean, was it like a berserker type uh link to it, maybe? I don't know. That's kind of my thoughts on it. But we'll 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 yeah, table that one <laughs> and you can ponder it. But um I've noticed a lot of the stuff you do um revolves around taking things that aren't necessarily um you know, utilize for foraging or they ha- don't have any significance or great purpose. I mean, yes, you can eat them, but they don't taste that great. And uh, stuff like that, like making teas, uh, what kind of drove you towards doing that?
2: Yeah, I think so. One of the first things is that I like to. Like in in my personal life of foraging, not not just like what I take pictures of or like to teach people about, but what, what I actually forage for, I really like to forage for things that I can get a lot of, because uh, I want to I want to be able to store it, I want to be able to use it for a long time, and I want to be able to get a an amount where it's like I'm not just tasting it one time or I'm mm-hmm. not making one meal, but I I can like really incorporate it into my life, and. Uh, one of those things was cleavers. Like there's in my backyard, <laughs> h- hundreds of them, they grow abundantly. And, uh, I had, so I'd seen a lot of different recipes, uh, and, and things of how to use cleavers. I, I tried eating them. Not very good. <laughs> uh, I tried to make the pesto. I, I didn't do it correctly. I, I need to try again at that one. Cause it didn't work very well the, the way that I tried. Um, and so and I was like, well, you know, I'm also into herbalism. So I was like, let, let me see if I can make a tea out of this. So I tried to make it with fresh. Not very good. Okay, that didn't work. And then I said, let me try to dry it. Because a lot of times if uh, with purple dead nettle, fresh tea, don't like it at all. Mm-hmm. But if I dry purple dead nettle and make a tea with it, it's incredible. It's one of my favorite teas. It smells terrible. So I tried that with, with the cleavers. It
1: smells terrible when you dry it. But... It just has a weird, strange smell to it. Yeah, you know?
2: and I don't know, like uh, uh,
1: different... Like it's not know, a becoming, I, you know, it's not like a becoming mint to where you're like, oh, that's right. so nicely fragrant, you know, it's, it's like, what, what is this? <laughs>
2: you know? Yeah, I think, I think the reason that I like it is because I really like stinging nettle tea. And, mm. and I was drinking stinging nettle tea before I even got into foraging, really. And it reminds me of stinging nettle tea in some ways, like of a, I don't know, it's like a hearty, nourishing kind of flavor is my best mm-hmm. way of describing it. So I, I, I digress. I tried to dry the cleavers and make a tea with that. It was also really bad. And so I'm like, well, I, I think that I might be out of options here. And I don't, I don't know where the idea came from. And I was like, what if I roasted it? And so I tried that and finally had a hit and it was actually really good. I I enjoyed it. I would describe it as being similar to uh, roasted dandelion Mm -hmm. root tea. But for me, it was a success. I found this thing. It grows extremely abundantly on my land. I want to, you know, incorporate myself into my land. And so I found these cleavers. And if I dry them and roast them, it makes something really, really good. So with a lot of things, I think the same thing could probably be said for hunting. I've heard of you know, certain animals that people say like, oh, that's a a trash animal, or that's a trash fish. And a lot of times it's just no, it's just that, you know, the normal way that we cook things doesn't work very well for that thing, you know, but typically, there is a process or there is a way to bring out the best in whatever that ingredient, whatever that specimen might be.
1: I totally agree. And like one example of that is a carp. A lot of people don't like it. I've Never had a desire to eat it. And then one day a buddy's like, hey, I brined it and smoked it. Give it a try. And I tried it. And I was like, I mean, a little bit of a, a slight fishy taste, but still not bad. I mean, still very palatable. You could put it on a cracker and eat it. And I was like, wow, okay. Maybe they're not that bad. I mean, it's an abundant resource. Why not go take a couple and do that and then, you know, vacuum seal them and put them in the freezer and pull it out whenever and and don't tell people. Just lay that slab of fish out and uh, let them start picking it up the bones and then tell them, hey, that's carp. And they'll be like, what? You know, so different things like that are, are a great way to, you know, slowly introduce somebody and not even let them know, almost dupe them. And then they realize that it's not a trash fish or trash animal. I totally agree with that. So, I got to ask you, though, so when you roast it, like, how did you roast it? How did you go about that?
2: Yeah, so I um, harvested all of the cleaver, and then I dehydrated it. By the way, for anyone who's getting into foraging, a dehydrator is an amazing tool. When I first started, I lost a bunch of what I foraged for, because I was trying to uh, dehydrate it, like, out in the sun, and then, oh, it, it would rain, and I just could never <laughs> keep up with it really well, but a good dehydrator i throw it in there and it gets dried and i don't have to think about it so that's a really great tool for anyone who's getting into foraging um so i dry it and then i actually grind it up into a powder and just throw the powder dry into a cast iron skillet and then i would put it on a really low temperature and i stir it very constantly and then just let it kind of roast until it got to a basically a a darkness that i thought was good and then take it off, and there you go. Then I would use that uh, kind of powder in a tea.
1: Nice. So one of the other things I saw you that you do is you took flea bane, and and did you not? I mean, you made a tea with that, right? I thought there was nothing you could do with flea bane. I didn't even know. Is it actually edible?
2: It's one of those. Um, it it is edible, but I don't like it. <laughs> so <laughs> I. Would it
1: fibrous flower right with a very very fibrous uh stem stalk whatever i don't know the proper botanist term but
2: right yeah and the leaves are edible too and and i tried those and they're they're okay but they're not anything that i would go out of my way to consume uh but yeah i made i made a tea with with the flowers and it turned out to be not that bad it it does require so With many other things in the aster family, there's a bit of an astringency to it. So it does well with some sweetening, but the floral flavor, just base floral flavor is actually really, really nice. I was surprised by that. I wasn't expecting it. A friend of mine actually recommended that one to me that I try it. So I said, okay, why not? And it turned out to be quite good.
1: So is fleabane actually like the bane of fleas? Will it, I, I know somebody once told me that people used to, keep that around their house or or around their pets. So that would actually keep fleas away. Is that something that you think is, uh, or do you know of that is an actual truth to that?
2: So, yeah, I looked into that one and yeah. And there's also ideas that they would, I think they would use around cattle or things like that to keep fleas off of the cattle. From what I can tell, it's more urban myth than it is a thing that actually works, but yet the, the name sticks around. And, and that's still, at least here where I am, that's the primary name that I think people use right. by it.
1: Right, and I believe by me as well, it's Fleabane. Um, so what's some other obscure things or, or things that aren't kind of in the norm that you've uh, made teas out of? Um, so
2: another one that it, it's on my mind recently because I've been doing a lot of uh, projects with it is Wild Lettuce. And Mm -hmm. so this, again, is kind of in the vein of more of the herbal side of projects. You know, within foraging, I would divide it into kind of culinary edible uses. And then we have herbal medicinal type uses. And then another one would be even like uh, functional uses, like foraging for making uh, a bow drill or for making shelter or things like that. So this would still fall under the medicinal side. And actually, uh, so when I was in college and still sometimes now, I had insomnia. Quite often, I'd have a lot of difficulty sleeping. And I'd, I was into a lot of herbs at the time. So I, I tried all the things that people typically recommend. I tried chamomile and I tried valerian and I tried uh, tart cherry and, and all these different things, and nothing, nothing really worked. And then I ran into wild lettuce, and people talked about how this wild form of lettuce is helpful for sleep okay and so I tried to make a tea out of that and by the way this tea isn't very good <laughs> this is more of a, a of good medicine than good flavor because it's extremely bitter uh, and that one actually worked pretty well for me uh, and I've taken that and now I don't really make a tea anymore now I make a concentrated extract I actually just made a, a video about that one on uh, that I put on YouTube and but yeah it's it's one of those things that I developed a relationship with it very quickly because that plant helped me a lot in what I was dealing with at the time. And so for someone else, when it, when they approach foraging, it'll be something completely different. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about foraging is that for everyone that gets into it, it's going to take a completely different direction from mine
1: that I took. So was that actually like the, the, the thing that brought you into foraging? Or was that, I mean, was that the moment? Was that the, like the big, aha, that's, you know?
2: That, that actually wasn't the moment, but I can tell you what the moment was. Uh, so I, I've mentioned, uh, it was also while I was at college um, and I went to Auburn University and Auburn University is known for their oak trees. They have tons of oak trees all over the campus. And so, you know, every day I'd be in my labs Uh, I was studying electrical engineering, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, but then I was also really getting into, I was getting into nature connection and I was getting into survival skills and things like that and learning about how important, you know, nature was for me and, and so on. But at the time it was like, it was like, I knew that nature was good for me and I should be, I should be going out outside more. I should be getting out into nature more, but it was like a thing that I had to do. Well, at the same time, I started listening to this podcast called the Rewild Yourself podcast. Many people who listen to this one uh, maybe have encountered that one before with Daniel Vitalis. And he would do these monologues before the main episode. And he was talking about how he would go out and forage for acorns. And he was going to use them for food. Like, that's kind of, that's kind of strange. And so I'd listen to this and I would listen to it. And finally, one day I was like, you know, what, I'm going to try it. Sure. So I biked down the street and there was uh, very easily found a beautiful red oak with huge acorns. And so I harvested like a three gallon bucket full of these acorns. I was like, awesome. Okay, well, now I have to do something with this. So then I learned how to dry them. I learned how to process them. And before I knew it, I had this flour. And I was like, great. Well, now I got to make bread. And I'm not a baker. By the way, but I, I attempted <laughs> this bread that I made with these acorns. And I took my first bite. And then I thought back, and I thought about how I had gone out, I'd picked these acorns up off the ground, I'd processed them with my own hands, turned them into this flour, baked it into this bread that I'm now eating, and it's delicious. <laughs> and that was the moment that I was hooked. And now I wanted to know if this is so good what else is out there and i have not stopped uh, that search since
1: so my first venture into it was actually mushrooms and
0: pursuing wild game in wild places tuning to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment Also, while it's fun to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish, this is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
1: The first one, of course, the most common, morels. But then after that, it started to become a struggle, and it's like, man, so many people hit the woods, find these morels, and just sometimes even decimate areas, trampling over other things. And I saw that, and I was like, man, that's terrible. What else is there, though? What else should I be looking What could I be looking for? And so that kind of made me dive into the mushroom world, but I still didn't get into other things <clears throat> until I was sitting in the tree stand one day. And as your mind wanders, waiting for deer to come in, you start thinking about things. And I started looking around and I'm like, I can hardly identify anything in these woods. Like, I know that's honeysuckle over there. You know, it's invasive. Didn't know the extent that it actually does to all these, you know, native plants, but I didn't know much else. And I was like, that's terrible. Like, how much food. Is all around me while I'm waiting for this food to come to me. What's out there? And at that moment was when I was like, I need to know more. And that's when I started getting into it. And that's, that's how it happened. And then now now it's like I'm sitting in the tree stand trying to ID plants. And then I'll look around and I'll see something on a tree like really far off. And I'll pull out my binoculars and I'll look. And I'm like, oh, it is chicken of the woods or is that a hen of the woods at the base of that oak tree way over there? And I can't tell, maybe it's just dirt. I don't know. Maybe it's leaves. And then I get out the binoculars and look and I'm like, well, I know where I'm going as soon as I get down. And that feeling to know that I can see those things and identify those things now is amazing. It's so cool.
2: Absolutely. And it's something that uh, I, I feel the same way about that, that pattern recognition. Of, like, that's not just some orange stuff over there. Mm-hmm. That could be chicken of the woods, you know, or or this um, kind of like golden layer that's scattered across the forest floor. Like, that, those could be chanterelles or hen of the woods. And it's what I call developing forager's eyes. And the pattern recognition of the things that you're looking for actually happens remarkably fast. So, th- that story that I told, um, I started foraging in my 20s. And before then, I didn't grow up into plants. I didn't grow up into mushrooms or hunting or like, you know, I went hiking with my family a bunch and we would go birding and stuff, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about plants, but you pick it up very quickly. You start to learn the patterns of the things that you want to look for. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I, I recognize that one. I recognize that one. Like I'm passing by a tree. Like, oh I think that's a mulberry tree. Oh, that is a mulberry tree. Mm-hmm. And, it it all just starts to fall into place. I think that there's something deep within us. There's something very human about the practice of foraging that we actually learn it much faster than we might think. It can be a little bit of a struggle at first, but it happens faster than one might think.
1: Absolutely, I think it's so cool though. Like you you talk about that story about getting the bread and making that bread, and then thinking back, and and it's something that like. Not only are you thinking back, but you feel. You feel that connection that you went and you touched those. You had them from every state of their being to where they were, and then you recalled. But not only that, like you, you made that connection with nature that so many people are lacking. And if they have that, it, it brings a deeper sense of meaning, and, and a, a a deeper sense of understanding that now you are developing, like we talked about earlier, that relationship with those plants and so many things around us. I mean, and you know, when the mulberries are, are just starting to, to finish off that the, the black raspberries are going to be in full bloom soon. And all those things just tie together and one comes after another and it provides, it's this balance. It's this, this amazing balance that, that Everything works together, and we're just there. We're we're not. We're no longer in it. We're no no longer. We are a participant of that environment. We're just a spectator, and to to put yourself in it and. and you know, have your hands in there and get pricked and when you're pulling stinging nettles and doing all those things. That's the connection, that that sense of meaning and purpose that so many people are lacking. And it's amazing to see when other people, you know, everybody finds that and and that moment that ties them to it. And then all of a sudden, it just opens up this awareness of everything else kind of around you and you're more receptive to go and learn all these other things. It's so awesome.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And just like the memory, because you were talking about yeah, recalling of how you forage for something. Like to this day, my campus, I can tell you where things are in relation to where that oak tree was that was like really prolific with acorns or a really good spot that had uh, pine branches that went down far enough that I could collect pine pollen. And it's just like, I, I can see exactly where those places are and just places that I've been where I foraged. It's like, I can walk back through that place through the story that happened of, Of when I was out foraging there.
1: So one of the things you mentioned earlier, and I got to ask you about this, um, you mentioned learning survivalist skills and kind of, and I'm kind of curious whether it was like a survivalist mindset and trying to have like a sense of preparedness, because I find that people that do that really limit themselves because they don't have that relationship that we just talked about. And if you develop that relationship, it it's no longer about survival, but you have those skills because you have that relationship.
2: Yeah, so in in my particular instance it was a friend of mine was into survival skills. So fire making skills or building natural shelter or things like that. And for me it was it was cool and it was interesting, but it didn't it didn't kind of uh light me up with excitement the way that, that foraging. <laughs> does. And I think part of it is not that there's anything right. like wrong with those skills, like they're awesome and they're really interesting. And that's a whole nother rabbit hole in of itself. Uh, but I think for me, the reason why foraging just like was um addicting in many ways, uh, it, it's like a treasure hunt. It's like every single time that I go out in the woods, I could I could find like really awesome treasure this time. Uh, it could be, it could be chanterelles or chicken in the woods or, you know, also for me, one of the biggest mushroom prizes of them all, morels, they don't really grow much around me, unfortunately, but oh, I can man. find, you know, one or two every year, maybe if I'm lucky. Uh, but yeah, it, it just, you, you could, from that moment on, you could not keep me out of the woods, but yeah, the, the general kind of, a, a lot of times what I see in, in that, survivalist mentality that i think you might have been alluding to is almost as if you are making a spaceship and uh, when you go out you have on an an astronaut suit and you have not connected yourself to the land but you've actually kind of isolated yourself from it like i'm gonna get all these things and i'm good I, i have what i need and that's it but that's really cutting yourself off from a lot that's around you that could make that job tremendously easier if you were to open yourself up to it more and explore it more.
1: Yes. So one of the things you also mentioned was a bow drill and, you know, foraging for an item to build a bow drill in my mind, and tell me if this is what you were alluding to or not, but I think of like Mullen. What what was your plant that you were kind of talking about when you mentioned the bow drill? So
2: two come to mind. Uh, the first one was the one kill. that we...
1: Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So
2: what, I've, I've actually only done Bojo before. And like preface, I am uh, very much a beginner when it comes to survival skills. <laughs> uh, I still have yet to like really uh, dive into that skill set and, and give it the, the credit that it deserves. So I'm, I'm hugely a beginner. The first class that I did, the wood of choice was pine uh which was kind of on hard mode (laughs) it was it was extremely difficult and then the other one that immediately comes to mind in my area would be tulip poplar is a is from what my friend who's way more into this than i am tells me is a very good wood for making a bow drill
1: yeah i was thinking hand drill in my mind to actually rub it in your hands and have the
2: Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't gone down that rabbit hole quite yet, but I, but I want to one day.
1: And the the one thing I think is like it's not necessarily like survival skills. I mean, yes, in a survival situation that would be like extremely helpful, but more primitive or even bushcraft type uh, mentality to where it's just woodsmanship at that point, right? We're we're right. learning just like the foraging, you're learning skills that are long forgotten by most, and you're just rewilding yourself to those. So it's pretty cool to, to think yeah, about Yeah, absolutely.
2: That. Like base, base human skills, Yeah, right? If I need to survive or not, I want to know how to do this as a human, as like the history of fire with being a human.
1: Yeah. So I got to ask you though, the wild lettuce, we're going to go way back to that. Because in my okay. mind, it kind of reminds me of like, almost like harvesting opium <laughs> like when you see it like the process seems very similar
2: yes and uh preface i have not harvested opium before nor have uh, but I, I but <laughs> i know of yes i know of the compounds and the process and there is a particular reason for why it seems so similar so with both wild lettuce and with opium poppies, uh, as, as it seems, uh, what you're after or the plant has within it a latex. And th- when you gather the plant and then harvest it and process it and, and typically kind of like boil it down or concentrate it down, what you end up with is a very resinous type final product. The same thing actually happens with something like sweet gum, which is a very resinous tree. And I've done experiments with sweet gum before where I concentrate that one down. And it results in, I I mean, if I were to show sweet gum extract to you and wild lettuce extract the way that I extract it, I don't think that you could tell the difference. Maybe smell would be a giveaway, but it largely ends up with the same product. And that's because at their base, they have uh, latex in them. And so if someone's thinking latex, like latex gloves, that is along the right lines, because that's the same thing that's in rubber tree. Uh, I also get, I I get a question a lot about oh, if I'm allergic to latex rubber gloves, would I be allergic to wild lettuce? And the answer is probably not based on the allergy to latex gloves, uh, because that's typically an allergy to the proteins in rubber tree, the Hevea genus. And people who are allergic to that often don't react to the latex that's produced in aster plants, uh, wild lettuce being the aster family.
1: So I, I do know... Of an individual, and I think he would probably fall in that category, not with the rubber tree, but he actually has a food latex allergy, which includes like green peppers or red peppers and things of that nature that actually have a natural latex in them that I did not know about
2: yeah and and some people have uh, contact dermatitis with the with the latex in the plants in the aster family. So yeah, it's something that this also gets into the safety of foraging. So if you start foraging for the first time, whether it's for plants or mushrooms, you're going to be consuming completely new species than ones that you've ever had before because you can't find them in the grocery store in any form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And so I always encourage people, if it's something completely new to you, try a little bit first because you never know if you might have had some allergy that you just did not know about. So try a little bit. Uh, and then if everything seems safe, try a little bit more and, you know, continue on from that point.
1: Yeah, that's, that's definitely great advice. So when you're doing the concentrating, um, like how is that process? Like how long does it actually take? What, what does it entail? So from
2: beginning to end for my process, uh, it's starting off with dry material and extracting with alcohol first. And then adding water after, I find that it makes it a lot stronger if I do it that way. And then I'm straining out the plant material. So now I have like a bunch of liquid. And then I allow that to evaporate off for a certain period of time until it gets to a small enough amount of liquid that I can pour it into a silicone pad that I put into a dehydrator. And then I throw in a dehydrator at about 135 degrees and I let it, I let the rest of the liquid evaporate off from there. So. If you don't include, so like a lot of times I leave it to extract in the alcohol for several days uh, just because I'm not in a rush and it's going to extract a little bit more that way. Uh, But if you don't include that like active time of extracting, then I, I don't know, it would take around maybe four hours or so. But even then, a lot of time of that is just waiting for it to evaporate off or, or dry
1: up further. So when you're doing this to the wild lettuce, are you like taking a razor blade and slicing it just like the, uh, like you would for a poppy? I mean, this, the process is the same. And then you're taking that latex that has oozed out and dried up, right? And, you're, and then you're breaking that down? Or are you taking the whole plant and extracting?
2: That's a good question. And I'm taking the whole plant. And- Initially, I saw people talk about harvesting the latex in isolation. That's a good way to spend a long time not getting much out of it. <laughs> right? Unless you uh, have I, a huge tried...
1: patch and you just have people with razor blades slicing everywhere.
2: Yeah, even, even then, <laughs> I, I remember try, I tried that for a little bit. I was like, this is not working. And I also kind of realized, like, well, if I take the whole plant, the latex is in there. So it's not like it's, it's, not like it's going anywhere. Uh, so, yeah, I always harvest whole plants. It is way more efficient that way. And it, in many other ways, like for all we know, there are other compounds in the plant beyond what's just in the latex that are important to the herbal effects that we see in it. So I, I don't want to lose those. So I always go for the whole plant.
1: And you just basically chop it up, put it in an alcohol, extract stuff from it, right? And then, uh, and then dilute with water. Do you cover it with, is it pure alcohol at first or is it water?
2: I do pure alcohol first, and then I do water second. Sometimes I start with just the fresh leaves. And then other times in my preferred, I actually dry the leaves first, because then when it's extracting the alcohol, the ratio of alcohol is, is higher because there's a little bit of water in the fresh leaves. So okay. that's my complete preferred method. But you know, if I'm in a pinch, then sure, I'll, I'll throw the alcohol straight on the fresh leaves, I'll blend them up, and then I'll just leave it to extract a little bit that way and then continue on. With the rest of the process,
1: how how long does it actually sit in in uh, the alcohol?
2: I leave in alcohol for several days,
1: like but thirty I think that, or <laughs> what are we talking? Uh, about? Yeah,
2: so probably four days to a week, okay, or so. It could it could be longer. It probably could be even be a little bit shorter, and I think it would still we'd be talking about I think differences in percentage of effectiveness, not like whole factors of difference ineffectiveness
1: okay and then i mean so once you do this because i've seen the final product that you you do and to me it looks like something else that you might get in a lot of trouble for i mean it does look like a black rock
2: <laughs> yeah and i think that that's just dealing with that is that's what things look like when you take a resinous plant yep and you concentrate it down. <laughs> That's just kind of with the, and probably a lot of that has to do with the oxidation process. It's just going to end up with a color that looks like that. Like I mentioned, sweet gum looks exactly the same. And it was kind of cool when I extracted it the first time. I was like, oh, wow, it's just like wild lettuce.
1: <laughs> so the sweet gum, um, we're, we're going to come back to the wild lettuce because I still have some more questions. Okay. But uh, the sweet gum, what, what was the intent or purpose behind Doing the extraction process to that was it like uh, medicinal property properties for a certain thing? Like I believe I've heard that sweet gum, like the ball of sweet gum, can actually be used and extract things and has basically the same compounds as like Tamiflu. Is that uh, correct?
2: Okay, so (laughs) that gets into. A rabbit hole that I have gone way too far down. Okay. So uh, I'll get into it a little bit and then you let me know how far we want to go. Okay. So the answer to that question overall is no. Uh, and so the, the high level idea is that sweet gum, the infertile seeds of sweet gum contain a chemical called shikimic acid. It's actually in many different plants. Star anise is one that it's highly concentrated in. And shikimic acid is used as what essentially amounts to chemical scaffolding to make oseltamivir, which is the chemical name for the drug called Tamiflu. And the first time that I was taught this, I was told, yeah, so like this thing, it's in Tamiflu. And it's not the drug. It doesn't work quite as well, but it works pretty well. And so I was like, okay, cool. But... What happened was, I was looking up, uh, when I'm doing research for an herb, I always look up traditional uses for it, Mm -hmm. because I want to know, you know, how did the native people of this area actually use it? What were their extraction methods? Like, I want to learn as much as I can. And I looked up a little bit, and I couldn't find anything. They didn't use the sweetgum balls or the seeds in any way. It's like, that's interesting. So I kept digging, and I kept digging, and I couldn't find anything at all. I was like, what's going on here? Why would they have not used this? And come to find out uh, that that piece of information that shikimic acid is in Tamiflu is technically not right. Shikimic acid is used to make Tamiflu, but it's not in Tamiflu, that that nothing about shikimic acid is Tamiflu. Um, So uh, my wife and I did a, a lengthy project where we investigated this even more. And part of that was getting into other uses of sweet gum. And not in North America, but actually in Chinese medicine of a uh, different of a tree in the sweet gum genus. um, Liquidabar occidentalis, I think they use the dried balls of sweet gum for uh, flu like symptoms or, or cold like symptoms. And I also want to preface that. Sweet gum, the plant is used for cold symptoms and was used for native people, just not the part that you often see in uh, this modern, ver- a lot of modern herbalists talk about. So, uh, but in Chinese herbalism, these, the dry balls of sweet gum, so we're like, oh, cool, let's try this. And we got a bunch of dry sweet gum balls and we concentrated that one down. And one really cool thing is that our house smelled like Christmas as a really yep. nice uh, kind of Christmasy aroma that comes with it. Uh, but part of it was that we were showing that the concentrations that they were talking about using would not correlate to what people were claiming about shikimic acid. And further, the dried sweetgum balls don't have any of the infertile seeds left in them. So it was a different avenue that we were investigating. And, but that was part of the, the research for that project.
1: Cool. So, have you used it for anything, and and did it help? What what are, what's your personal basis? Not actual like scientific data, but your own personal basis on that. Have you used it with Suicum? Yes. Um, we
2: did not use that one at the time, uh, partially because I didn't I didn't know enough about it. I didn't know how concentrated of a thing that I had just made, <laughs> and I hadn't investigated the uh, Chinese medicine uses of it enough. To know that what I was doing was going to be safe. So um, I haven't used it so much in that way. Um, I, I've, made, I've made teas of the leaves before, and they taste, uh, they kind of have that uh, piney flavor, uh, the, the kind of like Christmassy aroma that I was describing. They taste medicinal. Um, I didn't observe anything profoundly strong with them, but I have not personally used it
1: to a large extent at this point in my journey with that plant. Interesting. So now the wild lettuce. Okay. How do you use that? And then you told earlier that you use it for insomnia. What what are its effects? What what does it feel like? What does it do to you? What is it and and is it does it have different purposes if it were in higher percentages or doses?
2: So for me, uh, what I do, so I concentrated down to that resin that we were talking about. The great thing about the resin is that it's extremely shelf stable. The not so great thing about it is that it's kind of a pain to, to take it that way. Like, I guess you kind of cut a little piece off and, and eat it, but that also, I don't know. It's just tedious to me. What I want is something that I can take kind of like I would take a tincture. So I actually dilute it in vodka. I got this tip from Sam Kaufman, who also made a video about wad lettuce. I was like, that's a great idea. So I dilute it in vodka and that way remain shell stable, but I can take it very easily. So I take, uh, in dose, what's the equivalent of what I started with in dried herb of around two to three grams. That's how much that I take. That could have a lot to do with the strength of the extraction that I make. So for what someone produces, it's going to vary a lot and you might have to. Um, try to you know start with a small amount and increase so the way that it feels for me um, I mean effectively it just makes me really tired like it
1: like opiate makes you tired or different so (laughs) no you know the feeling of
2: When uh, like you've worked really hard or you've done a lot of physical exercise and you lay down in bed and you know, like, I'm going to get to sleep really easily. I'm not going to have a problem getting to sleep tonight. It gets me to that place where for me, someone who has insomnia, it's like you lay down, you're like, I, it's going to be a struggle getting to sleep tonight. Like, I don't feel tired at all. My, my mind is racing. This is going to be difficult. And so, yeah, that's the best way that, that I can describe it yeah. is that it kind of brings me to that place from like, I, you know, I've exerted myself a lot today and I'm going to be able to get to sleep. That's, that's for me. And I also want to preface, like, this is N equals one. That's just my personal, what, what the herb does for me. Um, and drugs and plants alike, we observe uh, them doing completely different things in different people. So another one that it's known for is having pain relieving effects. And for me personally, I have not really experienced those properties of the herb before. I haven't noticed it where if I have a part of me that's hurting that it is helping with that. But a lot of people um, have commented on videos that I made about identifying the herb or using the herb, and they said that it works for them. So for some people, People, uh, people claim that it does have that effect for them.
1: I wonder uh, if maybe it is actual higher dose or more concentrated dose than than maybe what you are utilizing. I'm so curious now about it. I have, I have it to dive be. in and learn more. It's so just, there's, there's there's so two much chemicals
2: that we actually know about in wild lettuce, uh, and with one of them the effect makes a lot of sense. So lactucan is the name of of one of them. And it is a a adenosine agonist. And that's that's a fancy term. So I call it inverse caffeine. Caffeine is an adenosine antagonist. And the way that caffeine works is it binds to adenosine receptors so that I'm not going to explain this technically correct (laughs) preface, but so that eventually, essentially they can't be activated in, in your body. Uh, And adenosine is one of the things that's responsible for uh, giving you the feeling of being tired. So when we drink caffeine, we, those chemicals can't get to where they need to get to the uh, adenosine can't get where it needs to get to. And so it kind of delays feeling tired. It's another reason why people who drink caffeine in the morning may experience uh, a caffeine crash is because when the caffeine wears off, that adenosine didn't go anywhere. And so it kind of you know rushes, rushes into the site so you can feel an overwhelming sense of being tired. And then the other one is called lacticopicrin and it is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. And I don't know this one to a, a large extent. It's kind of interesting because that same thing is used for uh, nerve gas. And it's also used for some insecticides because (laughs) if you take too much of an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, it's part of what allows your body to relax its muscles. And so essentially you just contract your muscles and you can't uncontract them. And in high enough doses that can be fatal. Uh, So that's an interesting thing that that's what it does. Nicotine is also an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. And if we think about the plant having a defense mechanism, particularly against insects, that makes a lot of sense. So if plants have these, that makes sense in terms of uh, their natural ecology, their natural defense mechanisms. People also report that nicotine has analgesic or pain relieving like effects. So I think that that may be what's going on there. But that's conjecture on my part. I'm not 100% sure about that one. But when I discovered it first, I was like, this doesn't seem like it would make me tired at all. This makes me seem like it would be the opposite. But again, you know, the whole plant, for me, that that's what it does. So who knows? I don't know.
1: That's pretty cool. No, I. I you know, you never know. Um, so just uh, kind of out of curiosity, though, um, does it have any, I mean, like you talked about the potential bad things, but have you ever experienced any like side effects or anything to where... Like, for instance, sometimes I have a hard time falling asleep. My nose is a little stuffy anyway or something or scratchy. I'll go take a couple of Benadryl. If you stay up past that point of the tiredness with the Benadryl, it has a reverse effect. Now, all of a sudden, you're wired, you're wide awake, and you're going, well, that was stupid. So, I mean, it, did you ever experience anything like that with it?
2: I, I have not experienced anything like that with it yet, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> uh, but like I said, that's, that's N equals one. That's just for me. So uh, with any herb, with any new thing that you're trying, uh, caution is always advised and making sure that you do your research. And, and another one is, uh, it, I, I sound like um, kind of your classic, like a commercial, but like talking with your doctor. So uh, St. <laughs> John's wort is one that a lot of people will go to and they'll take because like, hey, it's an herb. And uh, I've heard that it can help with, with, with certain things. So I'll, I'll take this. Well. St. John's wort is an, uh, again, fancy technical terms, it's an inducer of the CYP3A4 pathway, uh, which basically is a enzyme in your liver that's responsible for metabolizing a lot of drugs, such as heart medication and immunosuppressants and birth control. And so if all of a sudden your liver is way more efficient at metabolizing those things and inactivating them as it used to be, maybe your heart medication won't work Mm. uh, or maybe your immunosuppressant won't work or your birth control won't work or something like that. So uh, just because it's an herb, just because it's natural doesn't mean that there can be dangerous interactions or side effects. So caution is always, always recommended research is always recommended.
1: Wonderful. And I think that's actually a good uh, segue into the end here with your PSA of uh, Warning <laughs> to to everyone. So, uh, can you kind of, as we wrap this up, can you tell everybody where they can find you and your content, and uh, maybe get a hold of you or whatever if they'd like to learn more or, or uh, see all your content?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, the the place that I hold closest to my heart uh, is my YouTube channel. That's where I post videos about how to use different plants, how to identify them. I post both long form and short form content on my YouTube channel. And uh, additionally, I post some extra pictures and stuff that are not on my YouTube on my Instagram. Uh, and then for longer articles and things like that, I have some articles that I think hunters would find particularly helpful or, or people who are on public land because it's an article about how to navigate all the the different nuances of the rules and regulations on public land and foraging, that can be found on my website. Uh, That's feralforaging.com.
1: Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I wish we would have kind of gotten into that, but uh, we could probably talk for hours otherwise. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you.
0: A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.